Hey, tennis fans, and welcome to another edition of Matchpoint Canada. I'm Ben Lewis. He's Mike McIntyre. We are the official podcast of Tennis Canada. You can find us on Twitter at MatchpointCan. And our main guest this week, ahead, well, as the Australian Open is now underway, uh, needs no introduction. He's been a presence for the sport of tennis in Canada for decades. Uh, Tom Tebbett, thanks so much uh, for joining us on the podcast uh, for the first time virtually. We appreciate it. Oh, no problem. It's great to be here. Tom, I'm impressed that you figured out the technology to join us through Zoom. I just want to say off the bat here, job well done. I'm a bit insulted by that, but let's continue. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I want to start, obviously, with uh, personal news on on your end. And I will not use the R word because you did not yourself. But, uh, Tom, I understand from your blog, uh, you will be stepping back from your duties with Tennis Canada uh, I guess just firstly, why the decision now? And uh, will you still stay involved with tennis in the future in any capacity? Uh, well, I don't want to be too long-winded here, but I actually planned to retire last year after Indian Wells. Uh, as I mentioned in my blog, I did 100 Grand Slams in a row. I reached that in uh, January last year at the Australian Open. Unbelievably, you know, there actually no Grand Slams really happened after that for the French being delayed and then Wimbledon can- cancelled. So I can't believe I actually hit it right at that moment. But anyway, I was going to do it. I was supposed to go to New Wales. I cancelled my flight a couple of days ahead and then the pandemic hit. And then there was no real reason to stop writing for Tennis Canada or think about retiring or anything like that. And then in early December, um, Tennis Canada got in touch with me about, you know, next year, 2020, 21, and maybe budgets and all that stuff. And I realized that that was the time to make my decision because I'd always told the, the people there I'd give them a fair warning if I was going to leave. So I left, and um, I guess a couple other things uh, without going on for too long. Number one, you, you sort of want to leave on your own terms, which I think is always good. I'm into my 70s, well into my 70s now. And the last thing is, uh, maybe a little bit funny, is yesterday. If I had been working yesterday in Australia, at 11 o'clock, I had one player playing. And at 1 o'clock in the morning, you know, 14 hours later, I had another player playing. Uh, I'm a freelancer. I handle all my own stuff. I stay with friends. I would have been taking a tram home, but the tram would have not been running at that hour. Uh, It would have been an hour to get home. I would have been ready till four or five in the morning, which I can do, you know, once or twice. But if uh, the Canadians (laughs) went all the way to the final, I think I'd sort of be whatever. So you can sort of see those things coming and you'd rather not get into that kind of a bind. And, uh, you know, and even writing the the Tebbit Tuesdays, I always enjoyed that. That was fun, but that takes a commitment. You sort of, you sort of rest after you do one on Tuesday, but then by Friday, Saturday, Ooh, what am I writing about next week and put things together, maybe write it Saturday or Sunday, and then, you know, sort of refine it on Monday and send it off on Tuesday. So it's not as simple as it sounds, but really, you know, being a tennis writer is tough at the grand slams, especially because it's basically 14 days in a row. And, you know, you're there from 11 till midnight. I, I set the record for sure for leaving Wimbledon uh, at one in the morning, two in the morning. You can go back, look at the logs, you know, when you check out with your credential, uh, the bar in your credential, uh, barcode in your credential, they can figure out when you leave. So I, I deserve an award for that, I think. So uh, just because I'm slow and uh, it takes a while to do these things. But anyway, I mean, I, I, I'd like to stay around. I hope to do a few things. We'll just see how things work out. So no more Tebbit Tuesdays. That means Mondays are going to become a whole lot more enjoyable for you now, I guess. Yeah, well, even Saturday and Sunday when you start thinking, what am I writing about this week sort of thing. So, uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, really, it's, I think I mentioned in the blog, I had 20 years at the Globe and Mail as a, a tennis writer and a columnist, 10 years at Tennis Canada. I mean, I, you're not going to go on forever. So, uh, and, and in a way, you, this has prepared me for retiring, I think, the pandemic, because nobody's been able to do anything since last March, really. So uh, I've had a lot of days with, you know, I had to sort of fill them however I did. And uh, that's just what I have to do from now on, most of the time, I think. But I, I would like to go to some, especially maybe the French Open Wimbledon again, 
because I've been there, you know, I really enjoyed going there and have people I know there. So we'll just see how that works out. Maybe Australia as well, because there's no place better to be at this time of the year. I can assure you of that. Well, I'm glad I don't have to make any mushy comments since this, since this isn't really the end and it isn't really a retirement. So I'll save those for eventually down the road. But there were a lot of nice comments that uh, a lot of your peers in uh, media, a lot of people working uh, that, you know, uh, tennis in, in Canada right now had to say and share on social media, as well as uh, players like Milos. And I particularly enjoyed Daniel Nestor's comments. Uh, how did that make you feel just listening to that lengthy list of uh, contemporaries and, and players you've covered speak about you so fondly? Uh, well, I wasn't expecting it. I think I've been told there'd be some kind of tribute, but I didn't expect the video tribute. So I, I, you know, I must say a tear came to my eye the first time through. I haven't seen it since, but, you know, particularly somebody like Christopher Clary, who I sat beside many years at the French, I thought he sort of summed up our relationship about uh, late in the, or early in the evening when the sun setting at Roland Garros. It's, uh, you know, it's really something to enjoy. And the family I stayed with in Australia, the Trengoves, uh, Kim Trengove was on and she was great. And there's a really lovely guy from Netherlands, Jan Willem, who did something. Uh, and of course, Mauricio Pais was on at the end. So, I mean, they're all people who have just been great to be around. And, it's, you know, it's hard to think about not being around them anymore. But like I said, at some point, you have to do this. And, uh, you know, hopefully I will see a lot of them again. Just in, in terms of, of being around uh, for so long, I, I'm curious if you could maybe take us back to your very first Grand Slam, which was which Grand Slam was the first one you worked? And do you have any specific memories of, of that tournament? Well, of course, yeah, the first one was Wimbledon 75. And that was Ash and Connors and Billie Jean King, one of your last ones. So couldn't have picked a much better one than that. You know, I remember the first time I went to the gate on a Thursday before it started and said, you know, said I was a journalist. But anyway, the guy let me go up and take a look at center court, which now they'd probably body search you and, you know, send you up to the, you know, the prison or something like that for, for being presumptuous. You could get in the guy. Oh yeah, just go on. So I walked up, I'm standing there the Thursday before it started looking at the center court. And I actually had been, I guess I'd been to the French open just before that. And the first time you walk into the French open, you look at that red clay court, because we're all used to playing on sort of gray clay courts here in North America. And it's just a huge difference when you see that, you know, the red clay, the Terre in Paris and the people there and the environment, you know, the women are all well-dressed, the men are well-dressed. It's just, it's just a fantastic atmosphere. So they're great. And actually, actually, I'm wrong about that. The first actual Grand Slam was the year before. I forgot about that because I'm sort of a little more enamored of the French Open Wimbledon. But in 74, I went to the U.S. Open and that was the last year it was on grass at Forest Hills. So I feel really fortunate to have seen the U.S. Open on grass. And then actually in 1985, my first Australian Open was the second to last Australian Open at Kuyong on grass. So I saw the Australian Open on grass as well. And then 86 was the last year. 87, there was actually no Grand Slam because it went from December to January. And then in January 88, they, they moved to the new site, uh, which was at what was then called Flinders Park. And the great Bud Collins never liked it very much when they changed it to Melbourne Park. And Bud always used to call it formerly Flinders. Formerly Flinders. He, he would not accept that it was Melbourne Park. <laughs> um. I, I know we talked about this before we started recording how many slams you've attended, but just for our listeners, because the number is quite staggering. And Ben, I, I, you know, we got a long ways to go, obviously. But Tom, how many slams have you uh, attended then in total? Well, the strange thing is, uh, I, I don't know the U.S. Open for sure. I think it's because I know I've you know, obviously been every year since, I think, 93 and the first one, 74. But there's a couple there, I guess, because the U.S. Open just flew from Montreal and flew from Toronto. Wasn't that exotic? But I've been to 43 Frenches, 27 Australians. And about 33 Wimbledon. So uh, I have to check. I, I, I've kept almost all my credentials, but I think there's a couple missing for the U.S. Open. So when I go through the box to try to find them, you know, there's a couple that aren't there. I said, yeah, but I was there that year, you know. So it's 
it's within whatever, but I guess you know, 140 or so uh, in total. But I know guys who have been probably 170. And my great friend, Alan Trengove in Australia, he was at least 150. I talked to somebody the other day. There's a guy named Graham Agars in Australia. He's been to more than 100 uh, Grand Slams in tennis, but he's also been to 100 uh, majors in golf, which is a pretty interesting accomplishment. My oh. goodness, could you imagine that? Well, look, while we uh, enjoy listening to some of the, uh, the highlights, I know you don't want to dwell on them too much. So let's focus on what's happening right now and put your great tennis mind to work. Uh, first question about the Aussie Open is what was your reaction to the Canadians when you saw the draws for the first time and how they fared with their placement? Oh, well, I mean, I think Rebecca did really well. And unfortunately, Leila Fernandez lost uh, tonight. And I thought she had a tough draw against Mertens. I thought it was going to be a tough match for her to win. Um, and uh, Rebecca played really well. She won hers. And the rest of Milos, I think, obviously had a pretty easy draw. Uh, Shapovala was, it was a sensational match last night. I thought it was going to be a white book, quite frankly, because I'd seen Cinder play on um, Sunday. And he was out on his feet. I mean, he was out of it. And uh, I still think that was obviously an advantage for Dennis. But, I mean, Dennis played extremely well. And he served unbelievably, placed it so well at the end. And um, I mean, the two of them, the way they hit the ball, I was actually sort of getting a little philosophical about them and how promising they are and where they're going to go. And I asked myself this question. Say Roger Federer comes back and has one, man, one month of practice and sort of gets in decent shape again. Who would you take, Sinner against Federer or Shapovalov against Federer? I mean, they played that well. The only thing, the only thing I'll say about that is, remember a few years ago, Hachanov played Roger. I think it was at Hala, and I remember watching Hachanov, and he had so big. I thought, you know, how's Federer ever going to do anything against him? And of course, I think he's done okay against him since. So you can never underestimate Roger Federer. Um, no, no kidding, uh, Denis Shapovalov. I I feel like this was a crucial win for him because going in, as you mentioned, I mean, Sinner had been playing fantastic. He won a title at the tail end of 2020 and then opens 2021, picking up a title. Dennis was actually dated back to last year's six match losing skid. So there was, there was cause for alarm. Do you think a big five set win maybe to open at the Aussie kind of gets his gears pumping a little bit again? Oh, for sure. I mean, and to beat a guy as good as Sinner. I mean, it's been funny because I, I wrote a little list here of, uh, you know, the players that everybody's talking about, and they're, you know, they're ta- everybody's coming into this year's talking about Medvedev, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Sinner, uh, and Zverev. And nobody's talking about uh, Dennis or Felix. And I thought that's a perfect situation for them because, you know, all of a sudden they're yesterday's news. They were the hot shots, you know, a year ago, but now they're nobody. Well, they certainly are nobody. So I, I think it's a great situation for them and great for Dennis. And, and obviously we know there's a fair chance they're going to play in the third round, which should uh, be a really fascinating match. You, you probably have to pick Dennis in that one. But again, he's a favorite this time. You know, Felix is not. Maybe the, you know, he feels relaxed and plays really good tennis. So it'd be fascinating to watch if they make it. I mean, Dennis said after that match against Sinner that it's uh, one of those ones he's going to remember for his, uh, the rest of his career. It might be a little premature for him to say that, but obviously it, uh, it meant something to him. And, and he knew when he saw it initially, it was going to be a tough first one. Um, just to switch over to the women, um, a couple of, of pretty important comebacks to note. Obviously, Bianca Andreescu coming back after 15 months away. And we watched her get through uh, Buzernescu last night. Some of the old Bianca was definitely there and, and some rest to shake off, which is understandable. And then as well, maybe if you'd like to touch on Rebecca Marino, because I think that's really one of the, the touching stories uh, as well in terms of her comeback from about a year and a half off with uh, injury as well. And all that she's had to, you know, go through personally as well, the, the passing of her father and, and, and the fact this is the second comeback, you know, already of her career and, and how she's just sliding right back into that groove. Yeah, no, I, I think it's fantastic that uh, even the fact that she would go to, you know, the Middle East to play the qualifying 
Um, I mean, that takes a commitment. That takes a sort of a hope and, and to get through all the matches there. Everybody keeps saying she won them all in straight sets, but there were a lot of seven fives and seven sixes. And I think there was a set point at least in one of her matches. So that was a real fight. So great for that. And, you know, Kimberly Burrell obviously was a good draw, but she, she played very solid. I thought uh, her, her, her baseline game, her, her ground strokes uh, from the back of the court were really big and, and she hit the ball really well. And she served well. And she hung in, hung on, hung on in that tie break. It was eight match points and stuff like that. So it was a very good performance. Uh, Vondrasova is going to be very, very tough in the second round. I think they might have played in Fed Cup in the Czech Republic a couple of years ago. Right. Um, but uh, you know, Vondrasova is is a really good player. But she's got nothing to lose. She can swing freely, and uh, you know, it's just great to see her doing so well. I felt like I wrote it down yesterday, but she made a very big jump in the rankings just with because uh, you get the men, the women. I think get like seventy or ninety points for winning a first round. The men only get forty five, and plus you get additional points for the qualifying. So she made a back jump like, up from over 300 to like 230 or something. So that's a really good sign for her. And I don't know actually with Layla and her, if they lose, I mean, Layla's lost, but if she loses, if she stay around and play that WTA, WTA event next week, although with her ranking or maybe her protected ranking, I don't know, it might be tough for her to get in, but that would be nice to have a chance. I think that's a good tournament for these players, even for Bianca, if she happens to lose, because you've been in that situation, you've been playing in Melbourne, playing on those courts, and you don't have to do very much. And I'm sure they're happy to stay in the warm weather for another week and get a chance to, you know, have a tournament, win some WTA points and maybe even win the tournament. And uh, yeah, just uh, specifically on Bianca Andrescu, I, I don't know about your vantage point, but I felt like this was kind of a scratchy match. And at the same time, she put herself through a very tough spot in the third set against Buzarnescu, three all, love 40, and then persevered and dug deep and and delivered when she had to in, in kind of a champion's way I, I felt like that's a promising start given I feel like she can play much better tennis than that well she can I mean were actually the three the three break points she saved were all on winners and she said I think in her interview afterwards that, that when her back's against the wall she feels the most comfortable uh, actually what the match reminded me of strange enough I was thinking about a bit in 2011 when Canada went to Israel to play uh, Davis Cup Milos Raonic had fallen and hurt his hip and had a hip operation, you know, in July. And this was at the end of September. And he came back and played uh, one of the matches on the opening day. And he hadn't played for three months. And you're wondering, a guy has a hip operation. And I remember he won the first set. He played great. And you're thinking, Milos is back. Milos is back. And then this guy named uh, uh, Amit uh, Weintraub won the next three sets. And Milos, so I was thinking, you know, she looks so good this first set. She's into the second. I'm thinking... You know, maybe it's going to catch up with her. She hasn't played for so long. And then she really gutted it out. I thought she played really great at the very end of the match. And and those three uh, break points, I should say, I mean, you, you couldn't have done any better. Actually, I think the first one, she had a second serve almost on the line. And then she had, I think, a forehand winner almost on the line. So it's like that's she's a really great player. And maybe the great players are the ones that somehow hit it an inch inside the line instead of an inch outside the line. So very promising for her. It's going to be fun to see her second match, you know, against Hei Shui. Um I just, she's a goofy player with all kinds of funny shots and she should be able to hit right through her, but it's easier said than done. And, but Bianca's actually go, quite goofy herself with all, a nice variety of shots. So she should be able to counter that. So that'll be fun to watch. And then I think it could be Venus in the next round. I somehow think that if she gets there, she should be able to beat Venus, but and we'll see what happens after that. But I mean, I, I really was amazed at how well she played, I, I, you know, considering um, it's the first one out of the gate for 15 months. So many Canadians to talk about. And I like what you said earlier about had you been in Australia, you know, you'd be going from one court to the next and there's so many places to go now. And that's sort of like the, the double-edged sword, I guess, if you're covering a sport that's becoming so popular and, and having so many talented athletes in one country is you can only be at one court at a time, unless you're one of those people that stays in the bunker and never leaves their computer. And you've never 
ever been one of those reporters you're always you know scouring the grounds and, and working your way all over the place like Ben and I and that's part of the the fun um obviously the the tournament here in Toronto and Montreal uh something that Canadian tennis fans are going to be so looking forward to this year after having missed it in 2020 and and with all the names that uh, that we've just talked about and others um there's been a rebrand so uh, it's no longer the Rogers Cup which is going to take me a little getting used to I mean, you've seen several incarnations and, and different names of the event over the years. Um, but about the event itself, what are you sort of realistically expecting or hoping for in terms of what we can put together in these two Canadian cities, given the pandemic is still going on right now? Well, it's it's enormously complicated. I know they're considering not having any fans, I think, because it's just a little bit like Australia. You know, they started with none and they go to 30,000 a day and then who knows what. So it, I, I think you just got to wait and see what the, you know, the health situation is at the time, but it could be tricky. It's right after the Olympics. Um, it, players are coming from, you know, from Japan. If that takes place, if that doesn't take place, that would probably help our tournament a lot, but who knows if it will or not. Um, and then whether they have to quarantine here or how long they have to do it. And then are they going to want to go to the States after that and maybe have to quarantine there or something. So it's, it's all very much up in the air, but uh, you know, I think they're going to try extremely hard to have it. Just, you wouldn't want to go two years without having it. And, um, you know, hopefully things are settled down a little bit more by then and that be able to get a good field and have the, you know, the men here in Toronto and the women in Montreal. Tom, uh, before we let you go, um, I know you don't really like to play the prediction game, but uh, if, we were to- if we were to talk about the Australian Open women's side, because, you know, Novak Djokovic is the perennial favorite on the men's side. If you had a short list of, say, three or four players who are kind of standing out to you as a real shot to win this thing, who would those few names be do you think oh well i mean it's it's really hard to say i mean obviously uh djokovic i mean he's you know he's one of what eight times now going for nine and he played you know i, I always think he he uh, rafa at the australian open is like novak is at the french open they both should have won more at the others i mean it's sort of criminal that uh, novak hasn't won more french opens and criminal that rafa hasn't won more australian opens so i mean novak is the obvious one um, you know, I, I think Medvedev obviously is probably a second favorite, and then Rublev is playing unbelievable tennis. I sort of don't believe in Sitsipas that much. I just think something could happen there, and I think maybe somebody like Dennis. But I mean, Dennis is, is sort of in trouble because I think he can run a team. A team could be a little bit vulnerable, so it's really hard to say. But that's sort of the, the bunch. The only prediction I'll make, which sounds a little silly, but I don't think Osaka is going to win. Everybody thinks she's going to win, but I sort of think you know she she fate was with her. Everything went great. She played fantastic at the U.S. Open. Um, she hasn't played that much tennis and I just sort of have a funny feeling that, you know, something might catch up with her just when everybody thinks she's going to win, she might not win. So I don't know who I'd really pick. Uh, I mean, I think Halep might be a dark horse. Uh, Sriantek, I have my doubts about just cause I think it's whatever. Um, so it's, it's really hard to tell, uh, Barty, I have my doubts about too. I guess I have a, my doubts about most of them because <laughs> so many women that could win it. So you sort of think, you know, you can see scenarios for each of them losing. So it's, it's really hard to tell. I, I mean, love I love when we make our guests go first with their predictions because now I can sort of like you know prepare later Ben when we discuss our own because it's a it's a heck of a prospect on both the men's and women's side I feel like or maybe it's becoming more challenging on the men's side because that gap between Djokovic and the others I think right now is as close as it's ever been yeah it is I guess um yeah I, I have a, you know I just have a funny feeling about him too at some point it's gonna happen but I mean he just plays so well there and he you know he played well in his, in his first match uh, I think he's got, you know, reasonable draw. I think he, he has Milos in the 16s, which could be could be a little bit tough. And then what happens after that? But uh, anyway, we'll see. It's, it's interesting. It sounds like this one thing that's interesting about this tournament, having been there all the times I've been there, and I guess except for the very first one, it's always been in uh, January. 
I think people forget a little bit about the fact that it's in February. So lots of little differences, including where the light is on the court, you know, for the sun shining in your eye. And the main thing is, I think, the crowds and stuff. And, and having been there all these years in January, it's really like being here in July. You know, schools are closed. People are on vacation. Just everybody's in a fantastic, loosey-goosey kind of state of mind. It's, it's sort of like now, it's sort of like August, September here, maybe more September uh, in Australia. And the kids are back at school. People are at work. So that's why you, that one of the reasons you see the crowds aren't very full there is just that, you know, there's people are just, just aren't available to go. I think Aussie rules football may have started, which is on TV. So I think there maybe there's all kinds of things. Cause usually in January in Australia, this whole thing is blocked off for tennis and the country just goes tennis mad. And it's really, really great to be there because everybody's into it. It's on TV all the time. And, and the crowds there are enormous. And uh, so it's really fun. There's just a festive air of the whole place. There's, you know, music going on in all kinds of areas and stuff like that. So I think there's a lot of that missing this year, just partly because it's in February. See, these are the insights we get from someone who's been there 27 times, right? And that's uh, something, like I said earlier, that Tom, you know, Ben and I can only hope to have half as interesting a career as, as yours covering the sport. And uh, I'm not getting mushy, but uh, you're definitely a guy that I've, I've looked up to a ton. And I want to just thank you for, for all you've done for me in the uh, few years I've been covering tennis. And I look forward to National Bank Open and trying to find those, those good seats with you. But uh, we'll have to wait and see what it looks like, I guess, in August. Well, I hope there are seats available. That's all. <laughs> Tom, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks so much uh, for your time on the podcast and uh, congratulations as well for all your success. Okay. As they say in Australia, no worries. There you have it. Tom Tebbit of Tannis Canada, finally uh, hanging up the racket, so to speak, uh, in terms of his uh, blog with Tennis Canada and uh, just a ridiculous number of grand slams. You know, I asked Milos about it and uh, he, he made it very clear in the press conference. I don't see myself ever going uh, to near as many grand slams, uh, you know, let alone as a player, a fan, a journalist, it's a, it's a tremendous accomplishment. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing his induction into our Tennis Canada Hall of Fame down the line as well. Yeah, that's pretty much a foregone conclusion and uh, would be well-deserved for someone who's given, you know, such a chunk of his life to uh, covering this sport and, and covering it with, you know, passion and, and, and love for the sport. And, uh, you know, it was never, never seemed like it was a job for Tom. And there have been many nights, late nights at the Rogers Cup. I mean, now National Bank Open, but where I'd be leaving the press room and it'd be past midnight and I was bagged, you know, and this is me in my 20s and my 30s. And there's Tom still working away and typing away at his computer. So just, you know, a real role model in, in every sense. And I'm glad to hear that he's going to still be involved in, and sticking around because he's just one of those fun personalities that, that makes those tournaments, uh, you know, that much more enjoyable for me to cover. Well, you think of the details this guy is able to remember, uh, given every single tournament he's set foot at and every site he's been at, he remembers it all. So uh, you can tell he certainly has a love and passion uh, for what he does. You are listening to Match Point Canada. And, you know, we mentioned this with Tom, uh, the rebranding of Rogers Cup National Bank Open presented by Rogers. And we will get both installments in Toronto and Montreal. And Mike, uh, you and I had an opportunity uh, to discuss this and uh, a little bit more with the president and CEO of Tennis Canada, Michael Downey. And we'll uh, have a listen to that now. Um, Michael Downey, uh, president and CEO of Tennis Canada, also joined us. 
You are listening to Matchpoint Canada, and we are now joined by President and CEO of Tennis Canada, Michael Downey. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. And uh, wanted to start, obviously, with the, the big news that Tennis Canada announced just this past week, uh, that Rogers Cup uh, will now be known as the National Bank Open presented by Rogers. Uh, just first off, how, how excited are you about uh, this partnership and, and this change and, and securing a great deal for the future of of, uh, these two tournaments? Well, we're very excited, um, you know, especially coming, you know, through a pandemic to actually get uh, a long-term agreement with not only National Bank as our title, but also with Rogers as the incumbent title was music to our ears because it just gives us that kind of bed of financial security we need. But we also know both of these partners and that makes our life easier in theirs because uh, we kind of know how they will activate, how what they want to get out of it. And we know they're going to add a ton of value to tennis in Canada over the next decade. How much time goes into a, a process like this? How far back do these discussions kind of start? I would imagine there's probably plenty of companies that would love to partner up with Tennis Canada and an event of this magnitude. I smile because it was a long process. Like, um, you know, we started talking to um, National Bank in late October of 19. Um, we signed a non-binding letter of intent in February of 20, about two weeks before the pandemic broke. And uh, so you can imagine the concern on our side that we needed to actually pen a final contract. That contract took about six months, which is not you know, an unusually long time. But what was interesting, if I can just elaborate, is because we were in a pandemic, we never met face to face. So every meeting was by phone or like this Zoom. And uh, we signed the final agreement in late August of 20 and, and kind of been sitting on it because for many different reasons, but it was a very long process. But I will say that uh, their integrity was immense. You know, at the end of the day, the final contract looks an awful lot like the non-binding letter of intent. And of anything, I actually feel their resolve and their commitment to Tennis Canada and Tennis in Canada actually grew during the pandemic. They knew they had, we had, they, we knew they had our back beyond a big sponsorship deal. It was also, you know, they're our lending uh, organization and we need that moving in through the tough year we had in 20 and still have in 21. Well, that's uh, good to hear you could, you could get this all done and virtually as well. Obviously, we're getting quite used to this platform and speaking with our guests this way. Um, so we know it works. Uh, also curious just about the fact, I mean, these, these tournaments are in the summer. We don't know yet the answer to the question of fans, but we do know the answer to the question of broadcasting these tournaments and playing them. So uh, you also, I understand, have a new partnership with Sportsnet to, to keep these broadcast rights moving forward. Absolutely. Like, you know, and it's broader than that. You know, Rogers wanted to take a different position and they wanted to redirect their focus more to community and high performance tennis. And we'll make an announcement, you know, shortly about that. Um, and we're great to have Rogers involved because they've been a great partner. Um, but we're also really pleased that their sister company, Sportsnet, has done a renewal of the broadcast rights for domestic Canada and uh, we're ecstatic with that. You know, it's been a great partnership. They've helped us build this property and we look forward to uh, just taking the broadcast 
to another level in partnership with our friends at Sportsnet. When we spoke with you last, Michael, and we were talking about what the uh, tournament would look like this coming summer, obviously it was too soon to know for sure, but you said there were multiple uh, options being explored. You know, the numbers are coming down. Finally, it seems like slowly here in Ontario, and we see how great it is to see some fans in, in Australia and join the Australian Open at the moment. How optimistic are you at this time, or is there any change since when we last spoke in terms of what you're hoping comes to be uh, when August rolls around? Well, I think we're more optimistic, you know, and that's kind of stating the obvious um, in that, you know, there's 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 vaccines and, and hopefully our country can um, can move forward in vaccinating the population. So maybe by next August, there's a, a good percentage of the population is actually vaccinated. I will say we continue to use kind of the broadcast only as our base case uh, because it's the one that's most obvious and probably safer. Uh, and so there's a lot of planning going around that, but there's also planning going around limited tickets or limited fans on site. Our problem is we don't really know what that looks like. You know, we don't know what percentage of capacity would be allowed by local and provincial government. So our, our planning is more conceptual at this point in time. And it, it's, it's, um, it also includes discussions with all levels of government. It includes discussions with the COC, it includes uh, discussion with other events, other you know similar events, outdoor sporting events, because what we're finding is there's a lot of shared best practices that can go beyond just tennis. And we also think there's an efficiency of kind of going back to government with multi events in the same jurisdiction, because you know government has got so many, public health has so many priorities right now to have one-to-one -one discussions with a lot of individual events isn't actually in the best interest of public health. So we're in discussions with other events and then going collectively to public health for guidance. But you know, I'll end on this point. We, we really do hope that we'll be hosting some fans in August in both Toronto and Montreal. But it is quite complex because it's not just about you know, are we, are we sitting people far enough apart and social distancing? It's also about just making sure everyone's safe as they enter and exit the venue. You know, you know, everything from lineups to washrooms to food, food and beverage, all those things have to be managed. So it is actually quite complex. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, we're going to learn from a lot of other events. We'll learn from what the Aussies are doing in the next couple of weeks. And I think it's in our best interest that our event isn't until August. And there's going to be a lot of great learning that we can reapply come next this August. And let's hope we can uh, host some fans for the, the first edition of the National Bank Open in Toronto and Montreal. Yeah, fingers certainly crossed for that. Uh, and uh, just circling back to uh, tennis in Australia, I have to ask you, because I know you're a tennis fan yourself. And uh, we saw Bianca Andrescu step back on the court for the first time in 15 months and pick up a win. We also saw... Uh, veteran Rebecca Marino win her first uh, Grand Slam match in uh, 10 years. Uh, what do you think of these emerging Canadian storylines already to start our 2021 year? Well, it's, it's terrific, actually. You know, if you're, if you're a Canadian tennis fan, um, it's really, really exciting to see the lineup of these players that are going to be competing in Australia. And, you know, unlike maybe a decade or so ago where, you know, can Canadian fans might have been happy just to get a lot of players in the in the first round or through qualifying I think the expectations that the that all the Canadians can go deep and and uh, 
And that's just great. You know, it's a great lineup of Canadians. And I think especially the Rebecca Marino story is just heartwarming, you know, that, you know, she took basically four years off and um, to come back and, and not only make, you know, win, win the first round match, but also obviously qualify. And I, I know she is, she is doing this for herself. She's doing this for her country, but she's also doing it for the unfortunate loss of her father, um, from prostate cancer. So I think, I think she's, she's out there and she's going to deliver and I think she's going to continue to surprise and she's going to have a great year. Great stories already in just one day of action from Melbourne. Uh, I want to ask you about another Canadian veteran and this is a veteran of the tennis reporting world. That's Tom Tebbett, of course, who just shared with us that uh, he's going to sort of ramp things down a little bit in terms of his tennis coverage. And he certainly deserves that after all the years he's put into covering the sport. Um, just from a personal standpoint, he's been a huge mentor for me. And I know there's a lot of Canadian tennis journalists that feel the same way. Can you share a few comments over what he's meant to covering the sport uh, all these years and, and uh, maybe the relationship you formed with him during that time? Yeah, he's a very, Tom Tebbett's a very special individual. And, um, you know, it was probably one of the better, we, we all make good decisions and poor decisions and we look back, but this was a great decision when we were able to convince him to, to move over to Tennis Canada and do a weekly blog for us over the last decade. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, him being able to write often for Canadian tennis fans, I think is it's to the benefit of all of us because very few writers have the the knowledge base, the history that Tom Tebbett has. And he's all about facts and he's all about getting the story right. And, and I will say, you know, when I lived in Britain for four years and had the pleasure of running the, the Lawn Tennis Association, the writers in Britain had unbelievable respect for Tom Tebbett. Like I would bring up his name and they would just talk about him being an icon in the industry. So when you hear writers from around the world talk about Tom, you know you've got something special in Canada. And it's an amazing story, eh? That, it, you know, he told me the other day that he's, what is it, 100 or 99 straight slams that he actually attended. And so his resume is just impeccable. And, you know, I'll end on this note. I said to Tom when he told me pre-Christmas that he was going to retire, that you can come back anytime you want. Because in my view, the word retirement has a very different meaning today than it had, say, 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. So hopefully he does continue to write. Um, but I also look forward to his induction into the Canadian Tennis Hall of Fame because that is just going to happen. And it's so deserving. And that'll be a phenomenal celebration when it actually happens. I figured that was a foregone conclusion, but I was going to mention that uh, possibility. So we look forward to that. And Tom's our other guest on the podcast tonight. So uh, we'll definitely get into those things with, with him as well and look back on his remarkable career. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time with us to bring us up to date on the new partnership with National Bank to talk about our Canadian athletes. And uh, we look forward to touching base with you again several times throughout the year. Absolutely. Keep up the great work, guys. Thanks a lot. There you have it, Michael Downey, uh, CEO and president of Tennis Canada. It's funny when we have like rebrands and renaming, there's always like a group of people who are bothered, like, well, this doesn't sound catchy. This is weird. Like, why are we changing it? There's always that basic objection to change. And then there's immediate acceptance within a couple of weeks time. And I already find like the National Bank open name 
a little bit catchy to begin with. I, I think we can get used to it pretty quickly, honestly. Is it rolling off your tongue pretty good there? Is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm claiming. I, uh, I have no aversion to it, but at the same point, you know, to me at the end of the day, um, it's, it's what you're going to see there. It's the content and it's the, uh, you know, the action, but, uh, Hey, look, anything other than a cigarette company would have been pretty good for me, I think, uh, in terms of a new partner, which it's amazing to think that back in the 80s and even 1990s, that it was cigarette companies that were sponsoring some of these events, right? De Maurier Open and yep. Players Limited and things like that. So uh, what, what a long way, you know, our society has come in terms of who we would choose to, to put on there. But um, uh, yeah, I'm going to get used to it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to screw it up a bunch of times, unfortunately. So my apologies to National Bank because I'm a creature of of habit, but uh, more than anything, you know, what I take out of that uh, chat with Michael Downey is just uh, how hopeful we are that we can, you know, have a tournament happen and, uh, and have it as, as close to normal, hopefully by August as, as we can. Yeah. And of course, uh, Michael, very complimentary of the results of the Canadian players. Uh, you know, we've covered this on Twitter day one at the Australian open for Canadians, a perfect five and O covered the Rebecca Marino's Marino story, uh, return of Bianca winning her first match in the topsy turvy win, uh, over, uh, Mihaela Buzarnescu, you know, we don't need to do a mass preview here. Um, but just, I guess, venturing over to the men's side to discuss a little more, uh, Milos Ramos had a great start to this tournament uh three two and two against Korea very comfortable uh, I thought he looked good in the ATP Cup lead up for the most part and he finds himself in that portion of the draw where we could see a potential encounter with the Stanford Branca we could see a potential encounter with Novak Djokovic then again this is a spot where he plays really really well I it's it's tough to gauge how deep a run can he take this I'm not sure he's ready to beat Novak but a round of 16 appearance and getting that opportunity, I think would be uh, a positive for him. Yeah. I don't know if he's ready to beat him, but I know he's definitely ready to face him because let's be honest at the ATP cup, as he mentioned to us, as he was our guest last week on the podcast, you know, he was, I don't, I don't want to say upset because it was all dictated by rankings, but he would have loved to be in the number one slot for Canada. He would have loved to have been mm -hmm. facing Djokovic and to be facing Zverev, but obviously that uh, honor went to Denis Shapovalov and rightly so given the rankings, but Milos told us that, that he's itching to play those guys. So bring on Stan Wawrinka in the third round and then why not face, you know, Novak in the fourth? What does it, what does it matter really? Fourth round quarterfinals, you're going to have to face a guy like that. Uh, you know, at some point you're going to face the top five guys in the world, four guys in the world. So, um, bring it on. It'll be a great match for us to watch should Milos get there. And uh, I mean, with, with the serve and his success in Australia, uh, he's got, I wouldn't put him in the, the upper quadrant of players that we're going to discuss in a minute who could unseat Novak, but I think he's at the top end of that, that next group of players for sure. Yeah, I think so. Um, the name that's actually um, on the top of my list to possibly unseat Novak is on that top half of this draw and he took him to five sets in the final last year. And Dominic Team, you know, he said he took a lot of pressure off his back when he won the U.S. Open last year. Obviously, that was under certain circumstances where Novak, of course, took himself out of the tournament by his own inadvertent actions. And Dominic Team uh, won against Vera. But you could see the pressure he was feeling in that U.S. Open Grand Slam. If that pressure is kind of alleviated and he's able to play his powerful baseline brand of tennis, um, I have a belief that he could pull this off again, taking out one of the big three if needed. And, you know, given Rafa being injured and not 100%, I have, I have a tough time seeing him in the final. So if Dominic Team can get past Novak, I could see him winning another hardcore slam. Uh, absolutely. 
Yeah, agreed. I mean, like you said, getting the pressure off your shoulders from the previous year, 2020 was so huge for him. And it was so huge for many players who were getting to their first Grand Slam semifinals or first Grand Slam finals. And, uh, and he was one who capitalized clearly at the U.S. Open. Uh, he's got a, a nice looking draw. I mean, the Canadians are in his section of the draw. So hopefully Dennis or Felix, whoever can sort of come out there, can, uh, can give him a, a bit of a, a struggle. I mean, Felix would love, I'm sure, to play team again after the way their, uh, their match went at the U.S. Open, which after the first set really went downhill quickly for Felix. So, um, you know, hopefully a Canadian can have something to say about that. And, and Chapo's got the game where if he's, you know, hidden his mark and, and feeling it, uh, I, I think he could take out anybody on a given day. And then if you look at the other half of the draw, you got to focus on the Russians and it, it can't be overstated. But Medvedev, who's got, as of this moment that we're talking, a 14-match win streak, and Rublev's been playing pretty good too. But Medvedev in particular, not only does he have this 14-match win streak, most of those wins are against top 10 guys. Mm-hmm. So he's beating all the, the best guys he possibly can. And uh, in terms of confidence, you got to put him right up there. So uh, if I had to pick someone and, and go out on a limb, um, I'm, I'm taking that, that, uh, that guy right there. And- uh, I almost said Andre. Daniil Medvedev. Yeah, certainly. I mean, he... Uh... He proved his worth beating absolutely everybody at the ATP finals. I mean, winning the Paris Masters was enough. But you look at the names that he beat at the ATP finals, it was literally everyone, you know, taking out Rafa Nadal in the semis. He had already beaten Novak Djokovic in the round robin. You beat Dominic Team in the finals to win it. No Roger Federer available to beat. Um, and of course, he's not here. Uh, I think he's the best player in the bottom half of the draw at the moment. That is because we don't have a physically fit Rafael Nadal. Maybe that changes. Maybe he heals the back in time. But Nadal at 100% at this stage in his career, I can't see him beating uh, Medvedev. In fact, I wouldn't have much confidence in him beating Rublev if he's not perfectly fit. Yeah, it's too bad we got the question mark about injuries, really, because otherwise I think we'd be having a lot more discussion about, hey, Rafa's on the cusp of of attaining the all-time Grand Slam record taking yep. it from Roger Federer and surpassing him with his 21st, should that happen? But uh, again, when you have someone talking so unrealistically about how physically he's going to hold up, it, it kind of brings down that, that level of possibility. Um, but you can imagine come springtime and the lead up to Roland Garros, that is going to be on everyone's, you know, list of, of things to watch for. And uh, it's, uh, it's amazing to think, 21 grand slams uh, for, for a guy like Rafa, who, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, if, if he'd be able to do it, I, I probably would have said no, not based on talent, but just man, the beating that his knees were taking. And yet yeah. somehow he's managed to get through that and, and enjoy the success that, that we've uh, you know come to see and expect from him. Well, something staggering. I just thought of if he's able to break that record at the French open, it would be a 14th French Open, which is the number of Grand Slams that Pete Sampras holds, which was the coveted record that Roger Federer broke. And, and now we're just like brushing that record aside, leaving it in the wind. Like this is this is getting ridiculous if that is the case. Should say if he does get healthy again, uh, he is a contender here, uh, though it is his worst major historically. Uh, just a couple of other notes before we go. We do have fans in the stands, which I, I think helps. It makes a difference. We're aware, at least, of their presence. I mean, they're not packed stadiums. Uh, Nick Curios kind of spoke at length about uh, gaining that momentum within yourself when you don't have a crowd to lean on. But at least we have something there, which I, for me watching, I, I at least appreciate. Yeah, it's a step in the right direction. It was strange at the U.S. Open having none. 
And uh, but but it's weird seeing the stadiums not fully packed, not really getting the roar, and and certainly some players feed off that so much. Uh, as for Nick Curios, I don't know. I kind of just hit mute whenever I hear his name these days because you know there's just so much crap that comes out of his mouth. I I can't be bothered anymore. But uh, yeah, Ozzy Open, great to see that some people are able to uh, in, enjoy it. And uh, man, I don't know how you're feeling so far after just one day, but I'm already feeling kind of fried. Um, staying up so late last night up until 2.30 in the morning here Eastern time to catch Bianca's match. And I don't regret it, but I was totally a zombie going through today. So we got to find some ways to, I don't know if you have any secrets or what you do to try and get through these <laughs> next two weeks. Uh, I'd be happy to hear some of your, your tricks. Yeah, you really have to pick your spots here, pick your times to watch matches, decide what's worth staying up for, what is not. It was funny because you texted me after uh, – Bianca Andrescu won her first set very comfortably against Buzarnescu. You said off to bed. And then, you know, 20 minutes later, of course, Buzarnescu off the break in the second. I see you tweeting. Clearly, you were not <laughs> going to bed. That was not going to happen. You're not going to go to bed while Bianca Andrescu is on the verge of losing a second set and going to the third. Um, so, of course, that's a match you have to stay up for. Then you're, But then for me, I'm thinking, do I have to wake up and watch Novak Djokovic dismantle Jeremy Shardy? Probably not. That's probably not necessary. So I'm looking for, for the best matchups in the evening, maybe a little power nap kind of late in the day, I think is key. Um, with my other job, it's tough because I get off at six, but I start a little later. So sneaking in like even half hour, I think makes a difference. And um, about a liter of coffee in the morning. <laughs> and then sometimes you get lucky. Like today I woke up and Dennis was still going in the fifth set. I'm like jackpot. So I got the kids their cereal. We all sat in the couch and we finished that one off. And that was just like, oh, tennis gods. Thank you. This is uh, kind of nice, you know? So, um, but yeah, the nap is a good one and, and hydrating and uh, making sure you're consuming the right uh, products while you're enjoying the matches. And uh I think once my body acclimatizes, you know, I'll, I'll get into a groove hopefully and, and hit my stride. We'll get there. Uh, only 13 days to go. Uh, you've been listening to Matchpoint Canada. Thanks so much for joining us and we will speak with you next time.